And so for me, queerness means to subvert. It means to be different, to not be whatever is considered normative in a context. Welcome to Queering Contemplation, a podcast about the intimate and innate ways contemplation is queer. This podcast will explore the ways contemplative life hosts oddity, strangeness, eroticism, sexuality, and expressions beyond boxes and categories. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, award-winning filmmaker, podcaster, and author of the forthcoming book, Queering Contemplation, Finding Queerness in the Roots and Future of Contemplative Spirituality. Welcome to the conversation. Alicia T. Crosby is a justice educator, activist, and minister whose work addresses the spiritual, systemic, and interpersonal harm people experience. Her passions for justice, spirituality, engaged activism, and community engagement led her to pursue a master's degree in social justice and certificate in nonprofit management and philanthropy at Loyola University, Chicago. Her interest in religious violence, abuse, and trauma led her to Duke Divinity School, where she obtained a master's of theological studies degree. First of all, just really grateful you're here, really grateful that you're able to join me and share about your your work in the world. It's been so long that we've been trying to coordinate this. So like being in a place where we can have a conversation, I'm deeply grateful that we were able to carve out this time. So, so one way I love to begin is asking, how do you define and experience the word queer in your own life, spirituality, and work? So I... I think that I encountered the the premise of queerness before I understood any definitions of it. And it's just interesting to look back at myself and understand that I've always been queer, even if I didn't have like the language or even awareness of language of queerness. And so for me, queerness means to subvert. It means to be different, to not be whatever is considered normative in a context. But that subversion theme is, it's pretty important. There are a lot of people who would say things are queer or people are queer, and they're not. I mean, like, maybe they're a little bit different, but they're not subverting anything. They're not getting underneath a system or a premise of a thing and kind of upended it. And I think that that's what queerness does for me. It's how my queerness functions in terms of my sexuality. So I would also use the term pansexual, which, like, very few people like understand off the bat and they all make jokes about oh so like pans in your cabinets it's like okay good job guy so original but like you know in terms of my sexuality I'm attracted to energy gender isn't really a consideration for me and that's subversive because people talk about sexuality so much in relation to being attracted to someone's gender in terms of gender and gender performance and understandings of gender, I think there's a queerness to me. I was that little girl in tights and who loved skirts and twirling, but who also like loved to spit on trees and fight with boys. And so I was, there were always like holes in my stockings <laughs> at the end of the day. Politically, it means that I'm hoping for something other than what I see in existence. And so connecting that to my Christian faith means that like there's a prophetic nature to queerness for me. And I think that that makes sense to kind of ease into theology and that I'm hoping for possibilities that I don't yet see or that I've seen, but haven't seen like broadly. 
And so my whole life is queer. And if I like retrospectively look, my whole life has always been queer, but it's about finding language and connection and people that help me understand my own queerness and how it's always been a thing. Even if it took me to be about 30 to start claiming it publicly. Yeah. 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 And I love that queerness means to subvert. I love that. And in your work as an activist, minister, justice educator, have you found, or maybe, maybe you could tell a specific story about how you found your queerness innately entwined with those, those parts of yourself? Well, I mean, part of it, part of my story is that the queerness of my work helped me understand my queerness as a person because I started, you know, I've been an educator and I think I can say that I've understood myself to be an educator since I was 19 which is a little early for some, but I was student teaching a little bit for fun <laughs> at that age. And, you know, I went from that into advocacy and and what have you. But I started a nonprofit to help people talk um, across lines of perceived difference. In 2015, I co-founded that with a friend of mine. And we were having all these conversations about queerness and you know, the ways that it bumps up against, you know, faith for people at times or sociopolitical expectations and laws and whatever. And we were hosting like these weekly conversations that brought sexuality, gender, race, et cetera, into, into conversation with one another for people around the Chicagoland area. But what was super interesting is I wasn't out at the time. I wasn't out to myself. I wasn't out. I mean, you got to be out to yourself before you're out to other people, right? But it was our work that helped me come out. If for no other reason that someone who I ended up developing a crush on ended up in our circles randomly. And I didn't expect this because they were, I met them in a completely different state, like literally a different state. And then they were in my business partner's living room for one of these conversations. And I'm like, what the hell? (laughs) I love that. I love that. And I love the note you made about the, the coming out to ourselves um, and also the the queerness of your work, pointing to the queerness of yourself. And so I'm thinking now about like the inner and the outer life and the ways that queerness shows up in that way, you know, kind of like the inner sanctuary as the sacred place of self-discovery and understanding our truest selves. And in your work as an activist in particular, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the inner and the outer life's queerness and the ways in which kind of that nurturing of self and sacred space within and rest and all these kinds of things are so intricately important. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm so glad that you actually mentioned rest because I feel like rest in the type of like highly productive world that we live in is innately queer. Like rest and carving out space for rest, carving out space for contemplation, for meditation, for centering and grounding, and it not having anything to do with productivity. It just has to do with being. I think that that's queer, but queerness is being. Like this, the subversive nature of it all is, I feel, I mean, it, it's a state of being. 
like you can't help it like you cannot help this like what works for everyone else what works in for the majority of people does not work for you and so your very state of being means that things must be upended but there's also a consciousness I think in queerness that's communal and so you understand that you are not the only one even if you don't yet see those people even if you're not yet in community with them you understand that there's more of you and if there's not more people who are specifically like you, there are people who this also doesn't work for, which means that things need to be mixed up for their sake as well. And so I think that that's where the inner and outer lives meet because you understand, I think being a queer person who moves throughout the world queerly, meaning subversively in this, is that you need to make room for your being as well as the being of others. And so when you tie that into activism or like, you know, organizing, it means using your platform and helping to helping people to understand their power and what it means to build power from a position of things could be different, things need to be different. And how do we make things shift in order for all of us to just be. And in that being meaning, yes, like being is a, a place of stasis, but also is a place of living because you want life to flourish. Absolutely. Do you think that in that way and in the way that we're speaking to queerness in this, you know, kind of universal brushstrokes, I'm wondering, right, because in a way that it kind of contains nothing and contains everything. It is not a container and yet it holds everything and nothing, right? Also along with what you're saying about prophetic imagination and queerness, the prophetic voice and abundance and queerness. And I'm wondering if you would ever identify queerness with spirit or the divine's breath. Absolutely. Absolutely. The fact, you know, that words and breath are a part of creation and not actually a seeing God's hands, right? Like when we think of productivity, we think of hands, we think of making, we think of machines. But the fact that so much is on the breath, so much is in the wind, so much is in the word, like that's immensely clear because it's world crafting, like words are world crafting. And so this is, you know, a little bit of God being storyteller and artist in that that shaping, that forming, that creation, the majority of the creative work, when we even look at the creation narratives, is breath and words and things coming into being through speaking. And there, you know, there's a little bit of a little bit of handiwork that happens at some point. <laughs> but it's the invisible, making things tangible that's beautiful and divine and queer but I also think about like you know queer people being image bearers of God and what does it mean when out of nothing you bring things into being because the reality of the world that we live in is that queer people trans people are often the ones who are most destituted and I use destituted and not destitute because there are systems in play that take away money and resources and structures and homes and jobs and all of these things from us but even in that taking away we still make something we make families that are chosen we make 
homes out of couches. Like we make things out of breath and out of being and out of necessity. I, I would love to hear more about your own relationship to contemplation. So I don't, I don't think I would describe myself as a contemplative. I'm definitely more in the mystic camp. Like I'm a, a seer. <laughs> I have seen things all my life, visions, dreams, knowings, in, intuition. Like those things are like second nature to me. Like I don't remember a point in time where I didn't experience those things. Contemplation, less so. Like I have to like slow down my mind and my body enough, though that slowing has happened um, alongside the development of chronic illnesses and disability for me. And so there is a way that my body has made me have to be contemplative because I have had, you know, procedures and illness that have made me stop and I've had to be still. And in that stillness, um, I've had to reflect in and connect to the holy from that place because I didn't really have much else that I could do. Yeah. How have you found yourself holding that? that kind of tension? I mean, especially in, in your instance of navigating contemplative life in kind of a, a forced way, I'm wondering about the tension of contemplation and action or activism, right? While all, also, you know, balancing the need for rest, because in a way that like we were talking, that's, that's a separate thing entirely. Um, because if we're resting, to be productive, we're not really resting. So I think that this is where race enters into the conversation for me as a, as a Black woman. I think about who is afforded the space for rest and contemplation and what, why it's so necessary to make room in the contemplative world and contemplative life for Black folks, Indigenous folks, um, and, and people of color, because there are practices that we have that I think that we need to like consider to be, you know, contemplative, but because they don't fit within the framework of like whatever like white contemplative spaces say make sense, get rejected or minimized or look past. But I think also the demands that the world have on all of us as people of color, you know, we're not always afforded the ability to be still. <laughs> Like there's like, and, and even stillness means not having to be hyper aware. And I think that that is a very important thing to think about in this moment where we've seen, you know, shootings and police brutality um, within these first few weeks of, you know, 2023 impact people of color disproportionately. There's a state of hyper awareness that I think contemplative practice can help us with. I know has helped me with. Um, in calming my body, um, me doing some breath work um, and helping to lessen some of the anxiety that I felt in hearing and holding the things that I have and holding both in community, also in prayer for folks who are impacted um, directly and also secondarily. It's so, it's so curious. It's so curious. I, I, I feel like I'm like, <laughs> like I'm thinking a mile a minute right now. And my words are a little bit disconnected from my thoughts, but I'm just in this place where I'm like wondering what contemplative practice could be like in this moment for those of us who are racially maligned and marginalized and oppressed around the world, but really in the U.S. right now. 
Like there's so much anxiety. There's so much anger. There's so much fear, even apathy. And I think that contemplative practice has the ability to take us out of those places and not out of it for the sake of bypassing them, but out of it in that we're able to figure out like, what do we need to be well? And rest is one of those things. But like, how can you rest when shootings are affecting your community? How do you rest when the police beat a man to death? Like, how do you rest? And I don't think that that's something that white contemplatives think about in part because they're not even talking about these things, but we hold them and that's why we can't rest. Yeah. And I think my experience and my participation in the white contemplative world, the way it perpetuates a sense of valuing contemplation, contemplative practices over action, just that, that stark contrast. And then also the inaccessibility of what those practices are and look like and, and the ways that contemplation is actually a lot of other things that, that don't require, you know, the silent retreat that costs thousands of dollars or doesn't require these, these kinds of things that, that that world kind of implies. One of the most beautiful things I think I've seen within the last few days in a way that I, like literally bring it, is bringing contemplation and, and maybe not action, but activity into play. Um, there was, um, I saw this on like TikTok, um, which is actually a, <laughs> a, a fun tool for me being able to, to take my rest and to engage some delight because TikTok is wonderful or it can be. But the delight for me in this past week, it came from seeing um, a couple of brief videos from, I don't know if it was in Atlanta, I don't know where it was, but it was a meditative space and like with some yoga practice for Black men. And it was, honest to goodness, probably the largest gathering of Black men doing yoga I think I've ever seen. And like the the thing that gave me delight was when the video was showing is they were resting. Like they were sitting in a resting pose. And I can't remember if I heard if it was music or if somebody was speaking over them, but they were resting in a way that I'd never seen before, that I'd never seen in a group that large. And it was beautiful. But that does take some degree of action because it means somebody had to go out there and get the word out that in order to help people center their spirits and, you know, engage in a somatic practice that was going to allow their bodies and their nervous systems to be at ease, that this was an offering. So the creation of those offerings, I think, can also be um, action. But they're not actions that that white folks create for us. It only happens because we make them for ourselves. It's not even that we're invited into those spaces because what you were talking about in terms of the financial inaccessibility of like silent retreats or just retreats in general, again, it's because we do it for ourselves. Yeah. And I loved also what you said about contemplation looking different in different contexts. And I remember reading uh, the Reverend Dr. Barbara Holmes in her work about, you know, contemplative life being found amid shouting, being found amid among the community. And it seems to me that there's still like this 
two different, two different kind of not, not two different, but many different ways of contemplative life. And they aren't integrate integrating in the way that they need to. I would agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, obviously white folks in particular, including myself, the ways in which uh, contemplative life, again, just kind of harnesses this stagnant, stale nature that, you know, um, yields to the status quo. And to your point, you know, this notion of queerness, this, this notion of queerness as subverting, you know, from what I actually know of contemplative life and kind of what you were saying earlier, it's connection to mysticism, it's connection to oddity and strangeness and a different way of doing spirituality. I mean, I see and experience contemplative life is also queer in its truest form. Um, and to your point, some of those practices you mentioned are, you know, obviously subverting, um, obviously making room, creating space for people to access getting in touch with themselves. And I think that sometimes when we think about contemplative practices, I'm wondering if there are some sorts of disconnect. And I'm actually reflecting on the conversation a friend and I um, were having via chat this morning. Like I let her know that I had like a really like rough night with my pain and just I'm tired and it's just a whole bunch of stuff happening in my world. And she asked if I had tea. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I have these teas. I don't have this tea. And she's like, okay. So maybe get you this. And she's like, I could hear the properties that are, are, are in this. And so it wasn't just that she was telling me to basically engage different forms of sense in order for me to be able to still myself and to ground and connect with my spirit and to connect with the ancestors and connect with the divine. So in us speaking about like different smells, different tinctures, different teas and things that I could take in, she's like, hey, so, you know, this tea calms in this, this away. This scent is actually something that's deeply ancestral for us as Black folks. And we even talked about that in relation to my home. And I explained to her, like, like, so one of the things that she shared was the scent of pine and what pine um, represents in, you know, Black ancestral up space. And there are pine trees around my home. And so I've got like tons of pine needles. And she's like, well, and I was explaining how I love the scent. And she's like, okay, well, like, look at you. Like, you're making connections to your ancestors and to the holy without even recognizing that you are this thing has always been holy for us as she's like delving deeper into her her herbalist practice and she's like here you are connecting and so there's like a almost a reconstitution of knowledge that I didn't know existed that I was already tapping into but she helped me connect the dots in starting off in this conversation about drinking tea but that too is contemplation and it's a full experiential contemplation because it's about what I can touch and smell and taste and even here right the boiling of the water you know the the, the leaves rising you know even like you know, the crush of the leaves that I put them as I put them in my cup or in my infuser like there's all these ways that I can whole wholly um 
holy and holy <laughs> experience this sort of centering if I allow myself to be in a place of being as I connect with these things that are deeply ancestral. Yeah. And that entire embodied practice and experience and encounter. I love the the nature of being in touch with things that you might not even be aware is happening. Yeah. And I'm wondering what, what do you think embodiments can teach us in the realm of kind of queer and contemplative life kind of, and by queer and contemplative life, I think I mean in the context of this conversation, awakening it to its true form. I mean, I think that this is where like a little bit of decolonization helps um, in terms of the reconstitution of that knowledge. And I credit a professor of mine, um, Walter Manolo, who has been a scholar a scholar and a lifelong learner of decoloniality to help me understand um, about de about decoloniality, but specifically about how it requires the reconstitution to things. And I think embodiment is that piece. You know, there's knowledge and there's praxis and there are knowledges that we've been cut off from for reasons. And finding those linkages, those paths back, you know, I'm almost seeing it as like a cord that's been severed, but like, what does it mean when, you know, you find, I don't know, thread and string and yarn and like do what you can to like engage in weaving to connect our presence to the past and create a pathway for that knowledge to, to ride along. I don't know. It, it's, it's really important because through that weaving, through that, that work, I think we're able able to engage so much more fully, but there's something embodied. There's something that your hands have to move. There's something that you have to take hold of. There are materials that you have to find that may not be the original ones, but it's something that'll allow the knowledge to carry on nonetheless, to going back to a place where we knew things, where our ancestors knew things. And sometimes that's books. Sometimes it's, you know, archived material. Sometimes it's, it is visions and dreams. Sometimes it's conversations with folks who have, you know, been trained in the knowledge or have oral traditions. Like there's just so much there. But what does it mean for us to reconstitute this knowledge? What does it mean for us to, you know, go and seek and study and otherwise engage with our bodies and parts of our bodies? knowledge and wisdom that we've been cut off from. Yeah. And what you said earlier, I'm thinking about the ways that you talked about queerness as being. And I think about how that also means, you know, our, our continual, our perpetual becoming our, you know, infinite exploration, but the ways in which I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously I'm hearing you say the ways there's still these, you know, albeit sometimes invisible lines or walls or boundaries that are, um, and sometimes obviously literal ones that aren't opening up the walls to the, the fullness um, of engagement or the, the ease of engagement by any means. Yeah. I think queerness lets us literally go underground, lets us rise above, lets us find 
cracks in the wall just helps us in some way, shape or form work around what exists because that's how we have to be. It's like, we have to work around it. And we have to, we have to. Like I'm just sitting with, you know, the premise of like queerness as it relates to these blockages. And I think about like, you know, what it means when life springs on, from concrete, right? Where like nature has been destroyed and, or or so we think. And you see like these little signs of life, right? Like little shoots of plants, you know, a little flower in a crack in a sidewalk. I think that that's queerness. It's like they're really heavy things that are smooth and easy to traverse. But life finds a way, I think, with queerness in a way that is worth remembering. Like even when we've been paved over, and I think that we're experiencing paving in our history right now, in our laws, we've experienced pavings in the past in terms of the way that that gay and trans you know communities were treated in you know the 80s and 90s with the AIDS crisis and even you know folks who store who the story books or the history books don't speak about like the losses that those places and places and communities and people incurred right like those are the pavings those are the places where like there's heavy there's heaviness there, but nonetheless, in the cracks, in the uh, around the fringes, we still live, we still push through, and that pushing through is always beautiful, at least to me. But I'm queer, so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and in that way, that that pushing through, that subverting, do you think that's all? all activists, all prophets, or all mystics are innately queer in the way that they subvert and push through and, and show up. And, you know, and I'm, I'm struck by sometimes, sometimes the showing up is speaking to something beyond or speaking to the way things could be better. Um, sometimes it's not actually the dandelion and the crack, right? It's, it, it's both and. I think mystics and prophets are a queer lot. I don't think that the activists necessarily are. Because to be an activist, all you need is a platform and something to say. And there are a lot of really, really icky activists out there. And I know that like activism like as a concept is something that's very attractive to folks. People are like, I'm an activist. It's like the fact that you can declare yourself this thing, um, oh, this is problematic. Like who is your community? Who are your people? Like where where's your practice? Where is your study? And there are a lot of people who cannot answer those questions. And if they do, they give a like, oh, well, I have a community. Okay, so who are the people? Like, who can I who can I go back to to talk about you when you come out of pocket? When you do something that that is destructive and not subversive. When you do something that's harmful and not healing. And I think that there's a lot of that in, in activism because activism sort of like free range. <laughs> like, it's just whoever, however, it's just a field to go. However, thinking about mystics and um, and prophets, um, so for prophets, you gotta have a people. That's that's we're starting off there. Like you can't be a prophet to the the wind. Um, there is there is a people, there is a community that you are speaking to slash grounded in, and I think that that's where we gotta start the queerness. And that like there is no solo activity here. Like there is no individualism here. Like, you don't serve yourself 
you're always in community. It's you, God, and the people. Um, so that feels kind of like a clear thing to start with. You're saying things people don't like. <laughs> um, you're revealing things. And look, you know, queer folks will tell on you. They will tell on a system. They will tell your business in order for in order for the state of being for everyone to be on par, for it to be healthy, um, flourishing in a way that I don't, I don't think that other ways of being necessarily call for. So I think the prophetic nature is incredibly queer. I mean, you have people eating scrolls and making fire out of poop in, <laughs> in the text. You know, or living by, you know, the riverside and, you know, wearing camel hair, like, jumpers. Like, prophets are, it's a queer lot. <laughs> we are queer, we are queer people. But I think mysticism can also come into, into a space of queerness because mystics just be talking about things. And you're like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Who is the mystic who talks about, like, this like piercing and Jesus' side being like a vagina or something. This is where mystics come in. Because it's like, how did you see that? But I think that that's beautiful. That like you're seeing things that other folks don't see. Like you're understanding, you know, in Jesus's, you know, torture by the state, this place of life like in his side as like he's, his body has been pierced. Like, what does it mean for you to see that as a place of life, the place of life's origins? Like you have to be thinking clearly because clearly, nobody else is seeing that. Yeah. And the la- there's layers of like eroticism in that. And and it's so delightfully clear because that's an embodiment, right? Like when you're talking about eroticism, you're talking about, you know, this spiritual, physical, emotional engagement, like all in the same place. And then you've now added the theological element to it. Theologies of the body are so like distant sometimes from actual embodiment that mysticism reads is incredibly queer because it's so intimate. Yeah. And the headiness and the academia uh of of so much th- theology is just broken because it's it's disembodied it's disentangled from from its fullness so one one question i want to ask cuz i've i've loved this conversation we've covered so many different things and i'm wondering if you could wave some kind of a queer wand over Christianity in some realm, what aspect of Christianity might you queer um, or choose to queer today, rather? (laughs) If I had my little wand, I think I would wave my wand over conception of belonging, like who can belong and where they can belong and how that too is Christianity. I share this um, somewhere else recently. But I had a dream um, a few weeks ago, and it was a dream that was very much about a friend. But then I also, like, turned my, like, eyes on where I was in this dream after sharing that dream with her. And in this, there was this church. And I, because of earlier in the dream, 
understood myself to be the preacher in that church. Well, not the pastor, but like the guest preacher. And there were like rows and rows of um, of folks who were like processing into the into the church house, into the meeting space. And even though I was the preacher, I was outside, like underneath some type of like tarp or something. I was in some type of covered space, just reclined and chilling and whatever until I was to go preach. I was completely comfortable outside. There were a couple of people like, oh, come on in. I'm like, that's not my place. Like, I'll be there when I have to be there, but that's not where I belong. And I just had such ease. And that ease is definitely reflective of my day-to-day life because I haven't been a member of a church in eight years. No, nine years this year. And I'm a pastor's kid, right? Like. I was in a pew probably within my first few weeks of life. But at some point in time, like I recognized the fullest expressions of my faith happen in conversation, in over coffee, online, in all these ways that don't require me going to church on a Sunday or Saturday or whatever day of the week people can mean. That's just not what's life giving for me. And I will guest preach. I love to connect with communities in that way. But like being inside of walls feels so constrictive to me. And so this dream reminded me that I'm most comfortable outside, but that is also a valid expression of faith. And I think that that's a thing that people need to become more comfortable with. And that's where I would wave my queer wand because for a number of reasons, people are on the outside and they're questioning if faith is a thing that they can have and specifically if the christian faith is something that they can still hold on to because they haven't gone to church because they don't listen to sermons and i think that there is a way that people have to understand and make room for the reality that yes we too are christians and are a part of the family of god and it's time to stop ignoring this truth because more of us are convening outside and it's because there isn't room enough within these structured spaces to contain the fullness of who we are and so we got to be where we where we need to be for our wellness and for our spiritual flourishing at that like for me specifically in my own journey I chose to leave it wasn't that I was pushed out I got in too much trouble in churches I would do things that like bucks at gender expectations and like leadership norms. I'm just like, I'm done. (laughs) Like I, I need something that is not this and that something has been beautiful, but I want that something or these some things, whatever they will be to be available for other people and for them to understand that they don't have to advocate their faith in order to be where they need to be, regardless of where that is. So that's where I would wear, wave my little queer magic wand. <laughs> yeah. Well, you better trademark that because I'm pretty sure all of us, all these churches, all these churches coming out of COVID are looking for that answer, right? That's we need to get outside our own walls and we need to not just step outside of them from time to time, but knock them down. Well, that's 
that's the perfect note to end on if you ask me you know i've never asked that question so i'm glad i'm glad it worked for you because i was like what even is a queer wand we'll find out it involves lots of glitter <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i'm sure yeah it's great to get to really sit down and actually talk with you oh well thank you for inviting me and not just to talk but inviting me into like the community of this space like when we have like conversations like this like this is what we have the ability to do as a family of God. It's like we get to chop it up over stuff like this. And it's super cool. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. You can also learn more about me and my work at CassidyHall.com. This podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Into the Deep by Daniele Musto. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. You can find out more at christiancentury.org. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources and tools, head over to enfleshed.com.